And so, as we've been telling you about, in Columbia, South Carolina, a friend of ours named Braden Greer, he has been a pastor at Covenant Life Church since 2006. They have four children that are our kids. We're disappointed they're not here with us today, but hopefully they're, they're trying to see if they can work all the logistics out with their move to make it down here to be with us during Renew so you can get to know them a little bit better than he and his wife, Christy. Christy's up front as well. You can wave. And... Um, I'm sure you're uncomfortable waving, but, you know, you get the queen wave down or something. There you go. And uh, we are so excited to be able to partner together for the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I'm really, really in faith for is that Braden has a passion not just for people. He loves people. He loves God's people, loves serving. But he has a passion for people encountering Jesus. He has a passion for people getting to know who Jesus is and being changed by him and being changed by the good news. And so um, he is going to be planting a church, Lord willing, um, hopefully this fall. In, well, that's the goal at least. And, and then with a public launch in the spring of next year. So moving down here somewhere around September, he's going to tell you a little bit more about that. And then with a public launch in the spring, um, if you would like to partner together towards that, um, we're going to have many opportunities over the next few months to be able to give towards that specifically. We as a church are actually designating a portion of our income to help plant the church along with Covenant Life, who has designated some money there too. But they've not met all their needs yet. So we are excited about that opportunity. And so I want you to hear from Braden and his passion for the gospel and his passion for the grace of God to affect people's lives. So, Brayden, would you come, please? Let's welcome him. Well, there we go. There we go. We're old friends here. We've been, uh, we were here back in July, um, if you remember, and uh, glad to be back and good to be with you, and thanks so much for uh, uh, providing an opportunity not only to be here with you, but to partner together. You know, uh, one of the things is I've thought about um, in going to plant, you know, about eight hours away from, from Maryland is, am I going to find a home? You know, I'm not talking about four walls. Am I going to find a home? Am I going to find brothers and sisters and, to, to link arms with? Am I, you know, we're going to have a, a tribe, you know, that we can call home. And uh, that's, that's, the Lord's doing that. The Lord's doing that here. We're going to be an hour and a half away. The Lord's doing that in Columbia, too, with another church in Riverside that we're connecting with and getting to know. So it's just really neat to see the Lord just uh, opening doors and, and just caring for family in the midst of all this. So thanks for being a, a church that welcomes us. So, Well, a um, little bit of uh, background so you can get to know uh, me just a little bit, my family, and uh, also just to relate to the church plant. Man asked me to just talk just briefly about it before we get into the Word together. I was brought into the kingdom in 2000. Um, raised in a Christian home, but went my own way uh, until the Lord graciously rescued me out of darkness and brought me into his kingdom in 2000. I was 24 years old. I came to Maryland in 2001, um, actually with hopes to attend the pastor's college there eventually, and I did in 2005 and um, came on staff in 2006, as Matt mentioned. And um, Christy and I met in 2001, this, the, uh, the year I came, and we were married the next year. Now we have four kids. Madeline's nine, Caleb's seven, Maisie's just about three, and Duke is just about two. Two boys, two girls, and uh, you'll hear a little bit more about one of them uh, in just a few minutes. We'll have some fun there. Um, you know, the idea about four years ago um, came to me, just the desire to, 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 to feed the flock of God, to feed the people of God the Word of God, and 
to feed on it myself and then and share. And I, I enjoyed that at Covenant Life, got to do that a couple times a year. But it was one of those things, you know when you, you start to do something, and uh, it's, I know I'm not God's gift to the church, the word is this gift, right? But uh, you know you do something, you think, I wanna, I wanna spend myself on that, I wanna give myself to that. Well, when I, when I was able to preach the word, that was just something God, you know, give me, give me greater opportunity because I, I love to see your people understand uh, your word. And so um, with all the difficulties of the past uh, three or four years of covenant life and sovereign grace, all those things going on, I kind of put that on the shelf. Uh, and then as we sort of emerged, I think, from, from all those difficulties through a series of conversations with uh, some of the elders at Covenant Life and a, and a ministry coach kind of thing who'd come in to help us out for a little while, it just seemed like it was uh, Lord's will to start knocking on those doors again. Um, and so in, we had gone to Ohio, preached at a church that was an opportunity. Well, for several reasons, it wasn't the right opportunity. About that same time, uh, my friend Matt Rawlings, maybe you heard of him, uh, texted me actually and said, hey, you still thinking about church planning? I said, sure. He says, what about Columbia? I said, well, look. And so we, we came down, it was in July, and uh, when we were here and we went over to Columbia, we connected with uh, David and Martha Rich, and a few of you might know them. They were here for a while, and Chris and Carla, Carla's their daughter. Um, and so we connected with them, we connected with the area. Long story short, we're on our way down in September, uh, August time frame, and then with a launch, like Matt said, in, uh, in the spring, Lord willing. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's really exciting for us. It's an exciting time um, to be sent from Covenant Life and sent from, you know, and partnering with Greenville and partnering with Riverside. It's just kind of a, a, a church plant mutt, which I love. Um, you know, in that white, why Columbia and why that, it's the northeast suburb in particular. There's about 100,000 people in that northeast suburb. And in conversation with, the, with several pastors right in that suburb, they, uh, three of them said the same exact thing. There's about 100,000 people, and we can account for about 4,000 in churches that are preaching the gospel. I thought, wow, really, in the south? Really? Um, and even if that's a little bit of an exaggeration, there's still many people who don't know Christ who need to hear about the saving rule and reign and good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's you know, one of the reasons, uh, primary reasons we're going. Um, we, we want to see uh, God's mercies uh, enjoyed uh, and believed on. Um, and in the Northeast, it's interesting, the uh, suburb there, there's both Northerners and Southerners. I'm originally from Rochester, New York. Anybody up that way? Yeah, where from? Are you from Rochester? I'm from Honey Falls, Menden kind of area. Henrietta. Henrietta, no way. That's great. So it's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a different, uh, different feel, although I grew up in a very rural area. So I think, there's, I think we're personally, I think Christy and I will connect well. Um, but it's an interesting suburb, and, and uh, we should talk later, share, share stories. But, um, and like I said, Lord's opening doors, confirming the path. Um, and, uh, you know, the hope at this new church is, um, if, if you pressed on me right now, I'd say we want to live under the gracious reign of the risen Christ, making the Father's mercies known, in dependence upon the Spirit's power. Uh, the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is, is where peace is home. And the kingdom comes when we're ushered into his kingdom. There's joy, there's, there's delight, there's holiness, there's grace, there's mercy shown and received. We want to make the Father's mercies known through his word. Uh, and, and we want to live in dependence upon the Spirit's power. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons we're going there. Uh, you know, in Acts, um, uh, Aaron mentioned this. We see the word continue to increase. There's this phrase over and over again. The word, and that's what we want to see in Columbia. The voice of God gets stuff done, doesn't it? He, how did he create the world? He spoke. 
How does he recreate us? He speaks again. He speaks the word of the gospel, right? His, his powerful voice is how he gets stuff done in his creation. So we want to see his word, his voice go forth. And I love the fact that, that you all are really thinking about, praying about, and talking about how, we, how can we be more engaged with the mission of Jesus Christ that he gave the church. In Matthew 28 and other places, Acts 1-8, we see this mission that he gave the church. It's, it's, it's not optional, right? I mean, he gave it to the church. He says, Here, here's, here's what we're supposed to do. One of the things that I've loved this past year, I got to know this guy a couple years ago and just really uh, just developed a friendship with him. He used to be at the church, but he was very far from the Lord. Eventually, he knows I'm a pastor. We'd have some conversation, but I wasn't pressing it too much. Eventually, he said, hey, I think I want to come back to church. I said, great. I said, hey, what do you think about studying the Gospel of Mark together? He said, hey, Sounds good. So we're studying the Gospel of Mark together. It's been a little while. We've been out of it. But um, we studied it, you know, and we're going through, plotting through. And guess what? Guess who's evangelizing, my friend? Jesus Christ himself and his word. Uh, yeah, I'm there. We're talking. I'm facilitating. But we're facilitating an encounter with Christ. And Christ is calling him through his very own word. So that's where, as you all are thinking about being more on mission, uh, we all can do it. You don't have to have all the answers figured out. Help people get to know Jesus Christ. And, and, if you, and if you don't feel like you can give a good gospel presentation, ask them if they want to open the Bible. Not everybody's going to be willing. Sometimes you need to be friends with them for quite a long time and build some bridges. But that's one of the things I'm hopeful to is that, that every person uh, in the church in, in Church Plan in Columbia will be equipped and excited to, to, to share Jesus Christ in his word. Appreciate any prayers uh, you have to offer. We're in the process of securing home or some land to build on finalizing a church planning residency. Our older kids are going to miss, miss their friends. Um, so I'm praying for new friends, core team to develop, continued financial provision. You know, you know all the normal things for a church plan. Uh, we, would, uh, we would love your prayers. Thanks for listening and, and uh, partnering with us. Well, I mentioned my uh, children to you, and I thought you'd like to get to know one of them in particular. Uh, when our oldest, Maddie, here she is. How old is she there, Christy? You think five, four, four? Okay, when she was about this age, about three to five, uh, she was pretty precocious in the, uh, in the talking department, and uh, we just had a ton of fun. Um, she had said some of, the, some of the most fun things, and I'll share, brought a few. I've got six pages, but I'm not going to share all that. I mean, I had to pick from, I mean, there's 20 pages total. I even narrowed it down to this, but I'll just share a few, and uh, maybe you can get to know us a little bit. And this is always uh, in Christy. Christy's writing these down. So she says, I told Maddie I needed to run to the basement to get something from the fridge. And as I hurried on down, Maddie called after me, Mommy, when he runs, God is a lot faster than you. And then Christy writes this, My dad asked Maddie if she was going to get married. It's a common one, right? She said when she grew up, she would. He asked her who she was going to marry. She said Carson, friend of hers. He asked if Carson knew that. She goes, I think he knows a little bit, but Carson doesn't know everything. (laughs) Here's one that's going to require me to sing, but uh, maybe you'll appreciate it. Um, Christy writes, I was putting Maddie down for a nap, and I asked her what music she'd like to listen to. She said, how about Baby Bucket? Thought for a minute, running through all the music she has that I could think of, and came up blank. Baby Bucket, are are you sure we have that? Yes, we have it, Baby Bucket. I'm not sure about that. Can you sing it for me? Baby, baby bucket. (laughs) Aha, Davy Crockett. And she goes, yes, that's it, baby bucket. See, baby bucket, that's it. 
Let's see. One time we were, we were uh, watching a Christmas movie and a mouse came in the house. And so I, I'm scattering all around trying to get the mouse. I got the mouse in a trap and then in a bag, you know, I'm going to take it outside. And, you know, they didn't quite understand that the mouse uh, was going to die. We had two kids at the time. And uh, so as I was carrying it out in a bag, Maddie said, oh, no, it's going to be too cold out there for the mouse. <laughs> So Caleb, who's a couple years younger, he decided he wanted to pray. He goes, pray with me, Maddie. And, she re- <laughs> and so he says, she repeated after him, thank you, God, for Daddy. And he got the mouse. And then Maddie says, this is the best Christmas ever. I got to see a mouse for the first time and watch a movie and eat popcorn. I was like, what in the world? Oh, here's one. Uh, Madeline asked, I'm almost done here. I'm sorry. I hope you enjoying this. Madeline uh, asked to sing Caleb a good night song, and so she sang in a very soft voice while rubbing his head. She goes, lullaby, good night, go to sleep, little brother. You are a little brother, and you have a sister. You're a good little boy. You disobey a lot, and I try to obey all the time. <laughs> and she kept going from there. Uh, all right, one more. Um, so we had some uh, friends who, who went, uh, there's a couple more, but I'll just do one, I'm sorry. We had some friends who, um, the, uh, the wife was getting her appendix removed, so we went to the hospital uh, to be with them in the waiting room, and uh, so we walked in the hospital, we stopped to get our visitor passes, and we were helped by an elderly man and woman at the front desk. Uh, they were very friendly, and noticed that Maddie and Caleb were both holding dinosaurs, and he said, oh boy, are those dinosaurs? And Yes, said Caleb. And uh, Caleb loved dinosaurs with sharp teeth. You know, that was his thing at the time. And Maddie piped up. She goes, they are dinosaurs, and there are five of them. And Caleb got them from Mommy and Daddy as a treat for going poop on the potty. (laughs) Right out there, you know, just jumping in. And, you know, that's the fun side of kids, right? Um, And then we started to get into a little bit of this sort of embarrassing side of kids, right? We just keep quiet. Don't talk about that. We're out in public. Um, you know, and there are times when it's, it's right and appropriate. There are places for, for just adults, right, and the kids uh, to, to be elsewhere. But there are a lot of times where um, you know, kids aren't welcome, right? There, there are places and times where kids uh, aren't welcome. We've heard the expression, you know, seen and not heard. You know, certain vacation spots, no kids allowed, right? A wedding reception sometimes, and sometimes that's just cost. Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it's just unwelcoming. Um, and we've all met or perhaps at times been that person uh, who was too ambitious, maybe, to pay attention to any kids, right? And why is that? Why is that? I mean, if you think about it, sometimes it's just they're, they're messy and noisy. They're a lot of work, right? But oftentimes, it may be that kids don't seemingly have anything to offer. Now, what do I mean by that? They have plenty to offer, right? They bring lots of joy to us. But they don't bring anything to the table uh, in certain situations. Money, power decision-making, right? In in one sense, they really don't have anything to offer. They don't boost your ego like an adult, like praise from an adult can, perhaps. So from a certain worldly perspective, they don't offer much. And I think this is probably why the disciples said, don't bother Jesus with the children in Matthew chapter 19, right? Don't bother him. They're just children. We're going to be examining the end of chapter 19, Matthew 19, you can turn there if you want now. 
And then into the first 16 verses of Matthew 20, which records a parable from Jesus. But in order to understand this parable rightly, we need to understand the context. And this context is where, where I was talking about here in Matthew 19. There are two scenes there prior to this passage that we're going to look at. Two scenes that teach the right and the wrong attitude that we should have when we approach God. The children, they come to Jesus with nothing to offer him. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. They had the right attitude, right? And then, on the other hand, you have the rich young ruler who comes and says, remember what he says? Jesus, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He comes as if he has something to offer. He has something, believes he can accomplish something He can do something that can earn the good graces of God, that can earn eternal life. How am I doing, Aaron? Do I need to do more? Down a little bit. All right. Is that any better? Okay, great. So there's two scenes there, people who come with nothing to offer. And then Jesus, knowing his heart, says, sell everything you have. Give to the poor and follow me. And he goes away sorrowful because he was very rich. So the rich young man decided in sorrow to keep his wealth rather than to receive the wealth of the kingdom. And Jesus tells the disciples, remember, he says, it's easier for a camel to travel through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples are they're worried, perhaps confused. They're thinking, hey, this guy, he's, he looks like a good candidate for the kingdom. This rich young ruler, what? Well, I mean, he's blessed by God, he's rich, he's powerful. That must mean he's blessed by God, right? Jesus qualifies his statement. He says, all is not lost. With man, this, the salvation of the rich, is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even getting a large animal, like a camel, through a small opening, like the eye of a needle. Even that is possible with God. But, you know, the disciples weren't immune to wrong views of the kingdom of God. Right after the rich young ruler, there's an interesting exchange that Matthew records between Peter and Jesus. Peter asks what appears to be a less than sincere question, but Jesus responds graciously to Peter. So let's read in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 27. We're just going to read a few verses, and then we'll come back to chapter 20 a little bit later. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 through 30. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Father in heaven, when you speak, you give life. You are our source of life. Breathe out your word today, Lord. Breathe upon us so that we might receive the food of your word, so that we might be strengthened to know your mercy and your grace towards us and delight in you, and so that we might enjoy you more. So this week might be filled with more joy, more worship, more praise, more thanksgiving, more sharing the greatness and the goodness of your mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. Amen. Verse 27 of chapter 19. Then Peter said in reply, in reply to, with God all things are possible, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake 
we will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Peter's putting two and two together, right? The rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful. He didn't leave everything behind. But Peter and the 12, the other 11 disciples, he's saying, hey, we did it. Hey, Lord, we did it. We left everything behind. I mean, we had a, a, a good fishing business. Apparently, the kind of fishing boat he might have had would, would have been worth a fair amount. So we, we usually think of uh, poor fishermen, but actually, Peter might have had a fair amount to leave behind. And they did it. Where the rich young ruler failed, they, they had succeeded, right? They're prone to the same temptations as the rich young man. Yes, the 12 did give up all. So Peter and, and, and the others did leave a lot behind, but if they're still calculating what they are due from God, they still have a few lessons to learn. And once that, I don't think they'll fully understand until Pentecost, till the Spirit comes. Despite all this, did you see Christ's gracious response? He, he first tells these apparently self-centered disciples that they'll be ruling on 12 thrones. He doesn't rebuke Peter immediately. I think that's instructive for us, right? He'll be ruling on 12 thrones. And I wonder, you know, you read that and you say, Jesus, are you reading the same gospels that we are? I mean, these guys, they're saying, hey, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? All these things they're asking. I don't know he's reading the same gospels, but he is, right? He's living these gospels. He is the gospel. And, and he knows what he's going to do to them at Pentecost, how he's going to transform them, and how he's going to complete that transformation in the new world that he's talking about here. Then and only then will they be ready to judge on 12 thrones. Now, some say they're 12. Uh, since all the saints, in a sense, will judge, right? Um, it says in other places that is, this, is there a special place for the 12? Are they representing? Is this, well, either way, clear in Scripture, they're going to be judging, and all the saints are going to be judging. That's where we can hang our hat. You know, Jesus then broadens this promise of rewards to everyone who has treasured Christ's name more than houses, family, or land, and things that were precious to them in that society, right? Their security, their status, their comfort, their provision, their inheritance. I don't think it requires too much translation for us to relate to these categories, right? This is hard things for us to give up. They might have had a little bit more significance, particular significance to a people who after being, remember, slaves for 400 years wandered in the desert as nomads for 40 years, finally went up into their own land that God had prepared for them. Land and house were a big deal to these people. Perhaps even more so because at the time they're occupied by the Romans. You know, they might have been tempted because of that Roman occupation to grasp tighter under their land and their homes and their goods and their savings accounts and their 401ks because the country was going down the tubes. That sound familiar? Anybody worried about the country? Well, Jesus had an encouragement for them in a difficult situation. He has an encouragement for us as well. And what he's saying here, in summary, is whatever you leave behind so that Christ's name might be praised and honored and glorified will be repaid way beyond the loss. Whatever you leave behind. Whatever you leave behind so that Christ's name might be praised and honored and glorified will be repaid way beyond the loss. You know, in, in one sense, there's actually no such thing as sacrifice for the kingdom. Because when you give for Christ's sake, he, you, you receive far greater. It's right there, a hundredfold. 
A hundredfold is an expression of the magnificent grace and generosity of our God. He doesn't give you back what you had. Do you see that? He doesn't say, if you leave, you'll get it back. Something just as good or maybe slightly better. No, he gives out of his abundant generosity way more than you gave. You can't outgive him. And I think sometimes the reason that we go away sullen like the rich young man when that call to give up is because we forget whose kingdom we've entered. We forget the incomprehensible generosity of our God and everything that is at his disposal. He is a gracious God. So ultimately, yeah, it feels like sacrifice. It is painful. But if we receive a hundredfold, what we gain is far greater. Consider the list that Christ points out very specifically. Houses, family, land. Didn't our Lord say, in my Father's house there are many rooms? Houses. And didn't he say, who is my mother and brother and and, and father? Anyone who does the will of the Lord. The disciples, right? In the new heavens, we will have family. A great family. And then Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We will have a place. He has promised it very specifically. Houses, family, land. If you give these up for Christ's name, you will receive a hundredfold. The willingness to leave behind all these great gifts reveals that we treasure Christ and his gifts more. It reveals that we know him and we know him as the one who rewards those who follow him. So now what are we supposed to do? We're all supposed to completely scatter. This is the last Sunday that you'll all be together here in Greenville. You've all got to move spouses to different states. I mean, the whole bit. You've got to scatter, right? Otherwise, you're not going to get any rewards. Isn't that what he's saying? You've got to totally scatter. You've got to leave family. You've got to leave everything. No, Jesus isn't describing the way we enter into the kingdom, but he's affirming this, that all who have left behind temporary gifts for Christ's name will be rewarded by his grace. Our actions reveal that we are indeed subjects of the king. And in fact, as you read the New Testament, it would seem that most Christians stayed in their city with their families, loved God and loved others right in the place that God had put them. But if Christ calls, may we be ready, right? But he has to direct that. He has to direct that through his spirit. And notice what he does. He doesn't guilt anyone into leaving all these things. He dangles the gracious rewards in front of their face and said, come, Enjoy reward by giving up. Isn't that great? So if, if you read this and you're, oh, I haven't done this. I, maybe I should. You're not, you're not reading it rightly. Read the graciousness of our Savior in this. He has to direct that. Then Christ qualifies the, the teaching about rewards with this statement. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Since earthly values and kingdom values so often clash, reward in the kingdom of God will be surprising. It's going to surprise us, Jesus is saying. You can't quite do the math or get the formula. Let's see, if I give this, I'll get... You can't do that. You can't do that. It'll be surprising. And the parable teaches us just that. Let's read in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Knowing this, that Jesus told this parable in response to Peter's sort of mercenary question, right? What do we we get, Lord? What do we get? Chapter 20, verse 1. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Excuse me. So they went, going out uh, about the, again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. Verse 6. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, which is a day's wage. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, as I mentioned, keeping in mind that Jesus tells this parable in response to Peter's question about the 12 disciples and what they'll receive for leaving everything, it's going to help us rightly interpret the parable and keep us all manner of rabbit trails. Do you know that about parables, that you can, you can kind of make them mean a lot of things that Jesus never intended? Uh, we need to keep that in mind if we're reading them carefully. So Jesus starts off with a master who apparently needs laborers for his vineyard, day laborers or hirelings, common fixture in that society. And at harvest time, it was a way even for those who owned a small farm of their own to earn some more uh, money during, during harvest time. They'd often gather in the marketplace uh, waiting to be hired. And since there's apparently a lot of work, master goes out early, hire laborers. He agrees to pay them a fair wage, a day's wage, in fact, the denarius. Um, this would have been enough to feed a family for the day, um, depending on the size of the family, maybe a little bit left over, but nobody was getting rich on being a day laborer. Then the master goes out again and again later in the day to hire more workers. The third hour, or about 9 a.m., sixth hour, about noon, and then the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. He tells them he'll pay them what is right, and they all go out to the vineyard to work. And then did you notice that the parable treats one more group with a little bit more detail, a little bit differently. The master goes out about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., to hire more workers. Now, during the harvest time, um, lest we feel extremely lazy, uh, they, they were 12-hour days. They were longer days than usual. Uh, and so they, they, there'd be one hour left in the day. 5 p.m., there's one hour left in the workday. Master asked, why, why are you standing there idle all day? And, and their answer is that they've not been hired without any indication that he'll pay them. You don't even see that in the text this time, except maybe perhaps for his reputation. He sends them into the vineyard and they go. You know, I suppose for them, the worst that could happen is they could work an hour for free. Okay, it's not too much of a big deal for us. Now, there's nothing in the parable that says that they're being lazy. Uh, it's certainly possible, but the master himself uh, even says, why are you standing here idle all day? Perhaps implying that he saw them previously when he was there at the marketplace earlier, but he didn't hire them. 
Were they less than desirable workers by their appearance? Perhaps. We're not told precisely. I think it's just safest to assume they were simply passed over by prospective employers. And then when evening comes like a good Jew, in obedience to the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the master pays the workers right away because they depended upon that. And in fact, Israel was judged in part by not paying, by withholding the, la- the, the wages of a day laborer. Because if you don't give it to him that night, he's not feeding his family that night. So it was very important. Starts with the 11th hour workers first, then moves up to pay the workers who were hired first thing in the morning. So the, the order of payment might have been a little odd to them, but up to this point, things seem to go in decently in an order. This is a, he's a good Jewish master. And then the first surprise. The master pays those who were just one hour a full day's wage, 12 times the expected amount. I mean, imagine they were deeply grateful, right? Um, if they were only working an hour, they're figuring they get one twelfth. How am I going to feed my family? What am I going to do? I guess I'll starve tonight and give to the baby. You know, you, you, they didn't know how they were going to provide for their families. But now put yourself in the shoes of the ones who are exhausted and sunburned and hungry and thirsty who just got a second win when they saw what happened. You know? Hey, Nathaniel, did you see that? Did you see that? You, you know, they only worked one hour, and the master gave them a full day's wage. Now, Nathaniel, I know you didn't go past the first grade, but I made it to third grade, and I can do higher math. We are getting 12 days' wages for one day's work. This guy is a sucker. I'll work for him all harvest long. This is great. You know, they're excited. <coughs> but then the second surprise. And it must have dropped like a bomb on the disciples. Those who worked all day long in the hot sun get exactly the same wage as the 11th hour workers. No way. No. Does this guy even know? I have been here all day long. I have. You you give them the same wage? Absolutely not. That is completely unfair. I, look, I'm sunburned, I'm tired, I'm sweaty. I worked 12 hours for this guy. The guy who looked generous just a minute ago, now looks like he's being unfair. And they tell him so. They tell the master so. They grumble at him, saying, we've worked all day in the scorching heat. They worked an hour, and you made them equal to us? Did you notice that phrase? You made them equal to us. You brought them up to our level? Have you not seen how hard we work for you? You know, you chose us first. You chose us first for a reason. And these that are clearly less valuable to you, that have less to offer the master, you make them equal to us? We should be compensated accordingly. Now, the parable's not teaching about fair wages, so Christian business owners in the room, relax. Um, Fair wages is is appropriate. This is a parable not about the kingdom of earth, but the kingdom of heaven, right? And how God doles out rewards. So the master responds to the grumbler, addresses him as friend, which is is gracious, but in Matthew's gospel, it has sort of a corrective tone. Um, And he reminds them that he was fully faithful to them, right? He says he followed through completely what he agreed to pay them. He says, take your money and go. He says, I choose to give to the first as I give to the last. Um, Aren't I allowed to give out of my own money in the way I choose? 
Why do you look with jealousy or an evil eye, in the original is the expression of speech, on my generosity? Now, I think these 11th hour workers, who are they? Who do they represent? Um, anyone, I think, who apparently has less to offer the master. Right? We saw that with the children and the rich young ruler. You know, perhaps it's speaking about the Gentiles who were brought in after the Jews. Uh, perhaps it's those who are saved later in life. Perhaps the thief on the cross next to Christ who had no time to do much of any good works except believe and rebuke the other thief, right? I mean, that's, all, that's, all he, that's all he did. Perhaps like the children that Jesus welcomed, I mentioned, they can't really do much work for the master. Now, the rich young ruler, though, he could get stuff done for the kingdom of God. Who's ever prayed for, uh, you know, somebody like Donald Trump to get saved, right? Oh, if Donald Trump got saved, that'd be amazing. You know, he'd give all his money. And I think I was a kid. It was Michael Jackson. I prayed for Michael Jackson to get saved. If Michael Jackson gets saved, then he'll preach the gospel. And, you know, I wasn't even a Christian, but I was <laughs> praying for Michael Jackson to get saved. Why is that? I mean, we, we have, have mixed-up values. In the end, the 11th-hour workers were rewarded the same. Let's, let's take care that we don't import the world's values into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this master, let's reflect on him. I think he's a central character in the parable. You know, at first glance, he might seem like a hard man for not rewarding the extra work that the early morning workers did. It, doesn't, it offends our sense of justice, it offended their sense of justice, that they were paid so little, relatively speaking, even though it's not a cent less than they were promised, and it was actually the usual wage for the work that they did. But the master isn't paying based on the work that was done, is he? The number of hours worked did not at all correspond to the, the amount of pay, which is sort of the odd part of this parable. So then, what is his paradigm for, for how he pays his employees? What's his pay scale? Well, one indication is found in the amount of pay. He gives each a day's wage. So he gave each according to their need. Okay? Even if they worked one hour, they had a need, and he met that need. But there's another indication right in the master's words. Remember that? He says, towards the end there, he says, Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? And there it is. There's the deciding factor for, the, for determining the wage. It was not the number of hours worked. It was not what could be offered to the master. It was the generosity of the master. The generosity of the master was the deciding factor in determining the wage. So what seems harsh at first glance is actually quite freeing and amazing. It's actually the most amazing generosity we could conceive of. Because God does not pay based on what we earn. Therefore, he must pay on some other basis. And that basis is his grace. God does not pay based on what we earn. He pays based on his generosity and his grace. The Father's grace is proclaimed in the Master's generosity in this parable. How do we receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life? It's not by doing some good deed like the rich young ruler. It's not by leaving house, family, land, the things that he commends. In Ephesians 2.8, you were in Ephesians recently, for by grace you have been saved. We know this, right? We enter into eternal life and all of God's rewards by his grace. 
It's his sheer generosity to those who didn't earn it. This is the good news. And this parable is so astounding when we realize all the glorious ramifications for what that means for us today as subjects of this king. You know, this master, I don't think he went to the marketplace to hire workers because he was needy. He knew he's going there. There's one hour left in the day. I believe he knew what he was going to pay them. He went there because they were needy, not because he was needy. And you see the generosity of our God. He knew he was going to pay them a full day's wage. And you know what? I'm sorry if you use this phrase. I don't mean to offend, but God is not looking for a few good men. God is not looking for a few good men. You know what that is? That's a needy God. That is a needy God. We don't serve a needy God. You know, that's the kind of God you want to stay far away from. Some of you might have had parents who were needy of your emotions. They were emotionally needy, and you, as a young child, were meeting their emotional needs. That's painful. It's difficult. It it can be damaging to the psyche of a child. Our God's not like that. Our God gives to needy people out of his generosity. It's a false view of God, a puny God, a God we want to keep our distance from. And it's an anti-gospel. God's looking for many needy men and women. This is the good news. God gives generously from his kingdom wealth to needy people. And he strengthens them and equips them for the tasks ahead by his grace. So we need to get this in our heads. We don't work because God is needy. We don't work in the kingdom because God is a needy God. And isn't this freeing to remember or perhaps learn for the first time? Now, you all are talking about being on mission together, and that's a good thing. It is a fitting thing. It is a right thing. The thing we need to be mindful of when we're we're heading out on mission together is that there's a new brand of legalism that awaits us. When you're on mission together, sometimes it's no longer the, hey, I, I missed a few quiet times and I, you know, I didn't go to the, the small group. I didn't. That, that's, that's, that's one form of legalism. But there's another form of legalism. Well, I didn't share the gospel this week. I didn't, you know, I, I'm a believer. I missed that. Oh, God's not pleased with me. My goodness. I just. And then God's up there. How am I going to reach Greenville? Redeeming grace isn't getting it. I'm just so, oh, I'm so worried about Greenville and That's just not going to happen. There's a subtle creep to believe that God needs us, right? If only we'd get our act together. God's a lot bigger than that, isn't he? All right, then why do we work at all? Why do we work at all? Well, here's two reasons. There's plenty, right? We work because he's so good and merciful that to work for him is actually true freedom, right? You want to work for this master who pays by grace rather than by what we earn. We want to work that he might be known and worshipped. We want to say, listen, you ought to get to know this master. You ought to get to know this God who is so gracious and awesome. You should know him. Another reason, we, we also work out of love for neighbor. You know, the, the work we do in being an employee, a husband, a wife, a citizen, a neighbor. And I'm not just talking about sharing the gospel. I'm talking about all the other things that we do as people in this society, our brother, sister in Christ. This work, again, it's not because God is needy. Well, why is it? It's because others are needy, right? So our neighbor is needy. And like the master who hires, simply be generous. God calls us to meet the needs of others as well. 
So there's just two reasons. There's plenty more. The day laborer or hireling is a picture of neediness in the Bible. Okay? And, and they, they were near the lowest class. You know, they didn't need anyone to teach them the significance of give us this day our daily bread. You know how we have trouble translating that into our modern? They didn't have any trouble. They were looking for their daily bread, and they were praying for their daily bread, and they, they took that prayer to the bank every day. In this parable, we're identified to, 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 or we're invited, sorry, to identify with the hireling. Now, some of you in this room may be business owners. You may be important people. You may be wealthy. Um, and like the rich young ruler in the previous passage, you may be tempted to say, you know, I get stuff done by buying it, influencing, using my power. You know, I'm, I'm, I get stuff done. And in certain contexts, that's well and good. Not so with the kingdom of God. Not so with the kingdom of God. We have no entitlement before the Father to say, here's what I have to offer you. We have no right to declare him to him at any time you owe me. And in reality, this, this is temptations is common to the rich and the poor alike. God will not be hired out by us to pay us what we think he owes us. He won't be hired out. And we don't make God indebted to us when we obey or do kingdom work. Because God pays based on grace, not on work. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, man, this setup is really going to discourage people. I mean, if, if all this grace stuff, nobody's going to care about holiness, sin. Nobody's going to be sharing a gospel because it's just grace and you just, get, you just get rewarded. Man, that means you're getting it, okay? That, the grace is that shocking, but grace, understood rightly, lightens our load and makes us exclaim, I want to work for this master who pays based on grace, not on work. I want to work. I mean, it's true life. It's, it's, it's exhilarating. It's joyful. I, I want to work for this, this master. And you know, even if you're one of those who may identify with the 12-hour worker, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, you serve God faithfully, maybe you identify with them and you don't feel like he's given you what you are owed, guess what? You want God to pay that 11th hour worker. If you've worked 12 hours, you want God to pay that one hour worker by grace. Why? Because then he also pays you by grace. You want the pay scale to be by grace because whatever we receive by grace is always exceedingly more than what we earn by work. Whatever we receive by his grace is always exceedingly more. A hundredfold? Do you think you can earn a hundredfold? Actually, you can't, because even if you do 1,000 and then multiply it by 100, that's more than what you put in, right? You can't. You can't earn. You want to receive by grace. You know, even, even if the problem of our sin and judgment was addressed so that we were neutral before God, okay, reward by grace is always greater than wages by work. Do you remember what Christ said to Peter? It's a hundredfold. That's generosity. Are, are you in your 30s or 40s, and you're single, and you, you've worked hard at purity your whole life, only to see someone who squandered it, welcomed into the family of God, and married within a year. That's a difficult pill to swallow. But we need to remember, take care not to expect God to pay us according to our work. Are you childless after years of trusting and trying, only to see 16-year-old girls having abortions or raising babies as teen moms, children that you would love, that you've prayed for, that you've sought. Barrenness is a heavy burden 
to carry. It's a difficult burden to carry. But we need to make sure that we don't expect God to pay us according to our work. Did you parent your very best for decades only to see your kids stray from the Lord when someone else's kids are doing better than their parenting would predict? Listen, my kids are young, and it, should my children stray from the Lord, I, I really don't know how I'm going to handle that. that. That's a nightmare for me. That's difficult. But we need to take care that we don't expect God to pay us according to our work. We don't have any sense of entitlement before Him. We don't earn anything before Him such that He should repay Perhaps you're one of the 11th hour workers on the other side of it. You've, you've squandered your life and you've rejected God's love. Come to God. Leave your old life behind and trust him to be gracious to you, to be one who meets your needs and pays 100-fold. God doesn't deal with us in the way that we expect. R.H. Stein said it this way. He says, It's frightening to realize that our identification with the first workers, the ones who worked 12 hours, and hence with the opponents of Jesus, reveals how loveless and unmerciful we basically are. We may be more under law in our thinking and less under grace than we realize. God is good and compassionate far beyond his children's understanding. We should welcome the fact that heavenly kingdom values are so different than the earthly ones because isn't this world and its values a little bit messed up? Just a little bit? No, it's messed up quite a lot. So we should welcome a king who ushers in a kingdom with very different values about rewards. The ultimate reward is is, that God can give is himself. And if this is true, where is there room for grumbling? We all receive eternal life in his presence. All who trust in Christ receive eternal life in his presence. And this is what the uh, elder brother missed in Luke 15. Remember he grumbled about the father's treatment of the prodigal who came home. And the father said to the elder son, You've always been with me and all that I have is yours. But the son didn't want relationship. He wanted stuff. But God has given us himself. We shouldn't be mercenary like, What am I going to get? Like Peter. What, God, I've given What am I going to get? I've done this. What am I going to get? Daniel Doriani writes it this way, so Jesus warns Peter and everyone else that an undue interest in rewards can cause us to fix our eyes on that reward, take our heart away from the master, and so jeopardize the highest reward of all, joy in the Lord himself. Jesus isn't shy about the rewards, but in this parable he also warns us not to be focused on the rewards in such a way that we ignore the great reward, God himself. Now, back in the parable, uh, the, the, the master addressed the grumblers, remember, friend. Peter and the rest of us are that friend. All those who have labored in the kingdom, who've done things for Jesus, who've given up for Jesus, we are the ones who are being graciously warned not to start saying, well, Lord, you owe me. Are you keeping an account, God? Because I am. I know what I've done. I know what I've received. I know what they've done. I know what they've received. God rewards using a different pay scale than we expect. And some who seem last will be rewarded as if they're first. And some who seem first will be rewarded as if they are last. And this is because God rewards by grace. Simon Kistemacher says this, the principle in the world is that he who works the longest receives the most pay. That is just. 
But in the kingdom of God, the principles of merit and ability may be set aside so that grace can prevail. So that grace can prevail. And how does that grace prevail? A couple verses later in Matthew 20, verses 18 to 19, Jesus says this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Grace prevails in the kingdom because the king received judgment. Grace now prevails because the king received judgment. See, God does actually pay according to what is earned because he's just after all. And through our sin against him, we have all earned not reward, but wrath. So we're in great debt to the master. But when evening came and payment was being doled out, the sun was darkened, the father paid our wages to Christ. See, Jesus is the one who truly worked 12 hours in the hot sun. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed the master in everything. And then in the evening, he was paid in full. Like a murderer or a thief. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Talk about injustice. He, he worked 12 hours. Our, our, our sense of justice should be offended to some degree there. He worked, he obeyed the master, and then he received what? Judgment, like a murderer or a thief? But on the third day, he was raised from the dead, having fully paid the debt incurred by our, by our sin, making a way to the Father, making our pleas for mercy effective, effective and allowing us to receive 100-fold and eternal life, these rewards that Jesus spoke of. See, in the kingdom of God, reward is by grace, not by work. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. We know that. And God recorded this this parable for us, I believe for us, that we might be overwhelmed by his greatness, of his generosity and grace towards all those who believe. And then we might reflect that grace to others, especially if we think they've worked a lot less than we have for God. Especially if we think we're owed something. Tom Schreiner says this, Nothing compares to the riches of the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to both Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus. So maybe that's those who worked 12 hours, those who worked one hour. The kingdom is gracious, available to those who have spurned the Lord all their lives if they turn and repent. Those who are poor in spirit enjoy the kingdom, and therefore the kingdom is given not to those who are morally virtuous, but instead to those who recognize their moral poverty. You see the rich young ruler and the children in that? Rich young ruler, I'm morally virtuous. I've done all the commands. What good deed must I do? But the children come and say, I'm poor in spirit. I don't have anything to offer. I just want to be with you, Jesus. I just want to know you. I, I, I believe that you're, you're a good, I believe you are gracious and I come into your presence with joy and delight and I don't begrudge your generosity. Give it away. Give it away, Lord. Give your generosity to whoever you would like. You are a gracious master. Are you poor in spirit? Good. Good. Are you beat up? Are, are you weary? Are you desperate? Good. Come receive by grace what you could never earn by work. 
Come receive by grace what you could never earn by work. The Father wants us to delight and have big thoughts of his generosity and his mercy. Like Jessica's word where she's arguing with the Lord. Lord, don't you see all this sin? That's not what our God wants, and she knows that. Our God wants us to believe in his great generosity and grace and mercy towards us, and he tells us right here in this parable how great his generosity is. So let's enjoy his mercy. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your mercy. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you moved our transgressions from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. You are an awesome God. May we think great and magnificent thoughts about your mercy and your grace so that we might enjoy being your children, so that we might come to you as children believing we have nothing to offer but just enjoying you and sharing the love that you've shown us with others so that they also might delight in you and that you might receive more praise and worship and glory because you do all of it and so much more. We thank you, God. We praise you. Ask for your blessing upon this church. Bless them with great delight in your word. Bless them, Lord, with opportunities to share the hope of Christ with many people, remembering that when we do, we do so not earning anything before you, but enjoying the freedom that you've purchased for us in Christ. Praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. He pays us based on his grace. Let's go in remembrance of that. Let's go and remember that he didn't come to us because he needed us. He came because we were needy. And he pays us based on his grace. And, and I love the application to our mission as well. The reason we go and we share the good news 